the Audioboy project. A decentralized anti-authoritarian-based initiative focused on creating a library of audiobooks for truth-seekers and free-speech advocates. All content on this channel is free to download, share, and repost. Your support is much appreciated. Truth, audiobooks, for the people. The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Read for you by Bruce Wagner. Dedication and Acknowledgements Dr. Anthony Fauci's opinions and proclamations have been omnipresent in American media, and some people might assume his ideas and actions are universally supported by scientists or that he somehow represents science and medicine. To the contrary, many leading scientists and scholars around the world, perhaps even most, oppose lockdowns and other aspects of Dr. Fauci's pandemic management. They include Nobel laureates and other distinguished, accomplished, widely published, and internationally celebrated scientists. I dedicate this book to that battle-hardened cadre of heroic scientists and physicians who have risked their careers, their livelihoods, and their reputations to champion evidence-based science and ethical medicine. By steadfastly prioritizing truth, the welfare of their patients, and the cause of public health above their own career ambitions, these brave men and women have succeeded at great cost in preserving their own integrity. They may one day restore from shame the shattered souls of the medical profession and the scientific establishment. Each of these individuals has emerged as a voice of sanity and a symbol of clarity and truth to those idealists across the globe who love democracy and resist the rising medical authoritarianism. Thanks to all of you for your inspirational character, courage, brilliant insights, and your passion for empiricism and critical thinking. Dr. Harvey Reich, Yale University Professor of Epidemiology, Board of Editors for the American Journal of Epidemiology. Dr. Robert Malone, original inventor mRNA and DNA vaccination technologies, formerly editor-in-chief of the Journal of Immune-Based Therapies and Vaccines. Dr. Geert van den Bosch, past head of vaccine development for Germany's Center for Infection Research, virologist and vaccine developer at GlaxoSmithKline and Novartis. Dr. Michael Yaden, chief scientist and vice president of Pfizer's Allergy and Respiratory Research Division from 1995 to 2011. Dr. Luc Montagnier, virologist recipient of the 2008 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg, pulmonologist who served as chair of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe Health Committee, also a member of German Parliament for 15 years. Dr. Peter McCullough, clinical cardiologist, vice chief of internal medicine at Baylor University Medical Center from 2014 to 2021. Peter Doshi, 
senior editor at the British Medical Journal. Dr. Paul E. Merrick, Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, Eastern Virginia Medical School. Dr. Pierre Corey, Medical Director of Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin from 2015 to 2020. Now the President and Chief Medical Officer of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. Dr. Byram Bridal, Associate Professor of Viral Immunology, University of Guelph. Dr. Tess Lowry, Consultant to the World Health Organization. Dr. Didier Raoult, Director of France's Infectious and Tropical Emergent Disease Research Unit, Physician and Microbiologist. Dr. Peter Bregan, Doctor of Psychiatry, author of more than 40 books, formerly with the National Institute of Mental Health. Dr. Merrill Nass, Physician, Expert Delegate to the U.S. Director of National Intelligence Biothreat Study Program. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, Medical Director, Muncie Family Medical Center. Dr. Scott Jensen, University of Minnesota Medical School Clinical Associate Professor, also a Minnesota State Senator from 2016 to 2020. Dr. Ryan Cole, Pathologist. Dr. Christiane Northrup, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Physician, three-time New York Times bestselling author. Dr. Richard Urso, M.D., Anderson Cancer Center Assistant Professor from 1993 to 2005, Chief of Orbital Oncology and Scientist. Dr. Joseph Latipo, Surgeon General of the State of Florida, Professor, University of Florida College of Medicine, Assistant Professor of Population Health and Medicine at NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Martin Kulldorff, Harvard University Professor of Medicine, Biostatistician and Epidemiologist, Expert in Vaccine Safety Evaluations. Dr. Michael Levitt, Stanford University Biophysicist and Professor of Structural Biology, recipient of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Dr. Satoshi Omura, Biochemist, recipient of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. Dr. Paul E. Alexander, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Senior COVID Pandemic Advisor in 2020. Dr. Claire Craig, pathologist, served with Britain's National Health Service from 2000 to 2015. Dr. Lee Merritt, U.S. Navy physician and surgeon from 1980 to 1989, past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Sucharit Bhakti, microbiologist, head of the Institute of Medical Microbiology and Hygiene, at University of Mainz for more than 20 years until 2012. Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Stanford University Medical School professor, physician, epidemiologist, health economist, and public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases. Dr. David Katz, Yale University, founder of Yale's Prevention Research Center. John P. A. Ioannidis, Stanford University Professor of Medicine, Epidemiology and Population Health, and a Physician Scientist. Dr. Rodney Sturdevant, Baylor University Assistant Professor of Biostatistics, 
infectious disease scientist, Dr. Salman Kashavji, Harvard Medical School professor of global health and social medicine, Dr. Ariel Munitz, Tel Aviv University professor of clinical microbiology and immunology, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, MIT senior research scientist, Dr. Lisa White, Oxford University professor of epidemiology. There is a much larger retinue of thousands of lesser-known frontline medical professionals and Ph.D. researchers who have also chosen to wager everything on their commitment to their patients to uncorrupted scientific inquiry and to the opposition to authoritarian COVID policies. Many of them have battled unheralded in the trenches for decades. Each one of them has endured various intensities of vilification, excommunication, delicensing, and censorship by the pharma cartel's captive regulators, its corrupt medical associations, its media and social media allies and medical journals, and its government-sponsored fact-checkers. They have weathered derision, gaslighting, scapegoating, retractions, career and reputational injuries, and financial ruin to protect their patients and nurture truth. Many of you are listed at the front of the physical book, and my apologies to all who were necessarily omitted due to space restrictions, but who belong on this honor roll. I regret that the only consolation for your sacrifices may be a clear conscience. Publisher's Note Complex scientific and moral problems are not resolved through censorship of dissenting opinions, deleting content from the Internet, or defaming scientists and authors who present information challenging to those in power. Censorship leads instead to greater distrust of both government institutions and large corporations. There is no ideology or politics in pointing out the obvious. Scientific errors and public policy errors do occur and can have devastating consequences. Errors might result from flawed analysis, haste, arrogance, and sometimes corruption. Whatever the cause, the solutions come from open-minded exploration, introspection, and constant review. Ideally, science and public policy are never static. They are a process, a collaboration, a debate, and a partnership. If powerful people challenged by this audiobook claim it contains misinformation, our response is simply this. Tell us where you believe something is incorrect. Make your best arguments and offer the best available support for those arguments. We encourage and invite dialogue, criticism, engagement, and every suggestion will be heard and considered. Since the real Anthony Fauci is being published in the middle of rapidly unfolding events, and since censorship and suppression of information is underway, it's best to approach this audiobook as a living document. At the end of each chapter, listeners will be directed to the Children's Health Defense website for updates. We've published authors with views on all sides of many controversies. That's what we do, because at its best, Publishing is a town square that lets everyone be heard and lets everyone else listen if they choose to. As Alan Dershowitz says, 
I always learn when I read or hear Bobby's take. I can go several steps further, knowing from my inside view how principled and careful Bobby is as an author, and how painstakingly this audiobook was researched. This is an important journey, and I look forward to taking it with you. I'm Tony Lyons, publisher, Skyhorse Publishing. Introduction The first step is to give up the illusion that the primary purpose of modern medical research is to improve Americans' health most effectively and efficiently. In our opinion, the primary purpose of commercially funded clinical research is to maximize financial return on investment, not health. John Abramson, medical doctor, Harvard Medical School. I wrote this book to help Americans and citizens across the globe understand the historical underpinnings of the bewildering cataclysm that began in 2020. In that single Annus Horribilis, liberal democracy effectively collapsed worldwide. The very governmental health regulators, social media eminences, and media companies that idealistic populations relied upon as champions of freedom, health, democracy, civil rights, and evidence-based public policy seemed to collectively pivot in a lockstep assault against free speech and personal freedoms. Suddenly, those trusted institutions seemed to be acting in concert to generate fear, promote obedience, discourage critical thinking, and heard seven billion people to march to a single tune, culminating in mass public health experiments with a novel, shoddily tested, and improperly licensed technology so risky that manufacturers refused to produce it unless every government on earth shielded them from liability. Across Western nations, shell-shocked citizens experienced all the well-worn tactics of rising totalitarianism mass propaganda and censorship, the orchestrated promotion of terror, the manipulation of science, the suppression of debate, the vilification of dissent, and use of force to prevent protest. Conscientious objectors who resisted these unwanted, experimental, zero-liability medical interventions faced orchestrated gaslighting, marginalization, and scapegoating. American lives and livelihoods were shattered by a bewildering array of draconian diktats imposed without legislative approval or judicial review, risk assessment, or scientific citation. So-called emergency orders closed our businesses, schools, and churches, made unprecedented intrusions into privacy, and disrupted our most treasured social and family relationships. Citizens the world over were ordered to stay in their homes. Standing in the center of all the mayhem, with his confident hand on the helm, was one dominating figure. As the trusted public face of the United States government response to COVID, Dr. Anthony Fauci set this perilous course and sold the American public on a new destination for our democracy. This book is a product of my own struggle to understand how the idealistic institutions our country built to safeguard both public health and democracy 
suddenly turned against our citizens and our values with such violence. I am a lifelong Democrat whose family has had 80 years of deep engagement with America's public health bureaucracy and long friendships with key federal regulators, including Anthony Fauci, Francis Collins, and Robert Gallo. Members of my family wrote many of the statutes under which these men govern, nurtured the growth of equitable and effective public health policies, and defended that regulatory bulwark against ferocious attacks funded by industry and often executed by Republican-controlled congressional committees intent on defunding and defanging these agencies to make them more industry-friendly. I built alliances with these individuals and their agencies during my years of environmental and public health advocacy. I watched them, often with admiration. But I also watched how the industry, supposedly being regulated, used its indentured servants on Capitol Hill to systematically hollow out those agencies beginning in 1980, disabling their regulatory functions and transforming them finally into sock puppets for the very industry Congress charged them with regulating. My 40-year career as an environmental and public health advocate gave me a unique understanding of the corrupting mechanisms of regulatory capture, the process by which the regulator becomes beholden to the industry it's meant to regulate. I spent four decades suing the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, and other environmental agencies to expose and remedy the corrupt sweetheart relationship that so often put regulators in bed with the polluting industries they regulated. Among the hundreds of lawsuits I filed, perhaps a quarter were against regulatory officials making illegal concessions to big oil, king coal, and the chemical and agricultural polluters that had captured their loyalties. I thought I knew everything about regulatory capture and that I had armored myself with an appropriate shield of cynicism. But I was wrong about that. From the moment of my reluctant entrance into the vaccine debate in 2005, I was astonished to realize that the pervasive web of deep financial entanglements between pharma and the government health agencies had put regulatory capture on steroids. The CDC, for example, owns 57 vaccine patents and spends 4.9 of its $12 billion annual budget as of 2019 buying and distributing vaccines. NIH owns hundreds of vaccine patents and often profits from the sale of products it supposedly regulates. High-level officials, including Dr. Fauci, receive yearly emoluments of up to $150,000 in royalty payments on products that they help develop and then usher through the approval process. The FDA receives 45% of its budget from the pharmaceutical industry through what are euphemistically called user fees. When I learned that extraordinary fact, the disastrous health of the American people was no longer a mystery. I wondered what the environment would look like if the EPA received 45% of its budget from the coal industry. Today, many of my liberal chums are still crouched in a knee-jerk posture defending our agencies against Republican slanders and budget cuts 
never quite realizing how thoroughly the decades of attacks succeeded in transforming those agencies into subsidiaries of Big Pharma. In this book, I track the rise of Anthony Fauci from his start as a young public health researcher and physician through his metamorphosis into the powerful technocrat who helped orchestrate and execute 2020's historic coup d'etat against Western democracy. I explore the carefully planned militarization and monetization of medicine that has left American health ailing and its democracy shattered. I chronicle the troubling role of the dangerous concentrated mainstream media, big tech robber barons, the military and intelligence communities, and their deep historical alliances with big pharma and public health agencies. The disturbing story that unfolds here has never been told, and many in power have worked hard to prevent the public from learning it. The main character is Anthony Fauci. During the 2020 COVID 19 pandemic, Dr. Fauci, who turned 80 that year, occupied center stage in a global drama unprecedented in human history. At the contagion's beginnings, the U.S. still enjoyed its reputation as the universal standard-bearer in public health. As the world's faith in American leadership dwindled during the Trump era, the singular U.S. institutions that were seemingly immune from international disillusionment were our public health regulators, HHS and its subsidiary agencies, CDC, FDA, and NIH, persisted as role models for global health policies and gold standard scientific research. Other nations looked to Dr. Fauci, America's most powerful and enduring public health bureaucrat, to competently direct U.S. health policies and rapidly develop countermeasures that would serve as state-of-the-art templates for the rest of the world. Dr. Anthony Fauci spent half a century as America's reigning health commissar, ever preparing for his final role as commander of history's biggest war against a global pandemic. Beginning in 1968, he occupied various posts at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, serving as that agency's director since November 1984. His $417,608 annual salary makes him the highest paid of all 4 million federal employees, including the president. His experiences surviving 50 years as the panjandrum of a key federal bureaucracy, having advised six presidents, the Pentagon, intelligence agencies, foreign governments, and the WHO seasoned him exquisitely for a crisis that would allow him to wield power enjoyed by few rulers and no doctor in history. During the epidemic's early months, Dr. Fauci's calm, authoritative, and avuncular manner was Prozac for Americans besieged by two existential crises, the Trump presidency and COVID-19. Democrats and idealistic liberals around the globe, traumatized by President Trump's chaotic governing style, took heart from Dr. Fauci's serene, solid presence on the White House stage. He seemed to offer a rational, straight-talking, science-based counterweight to President Trump's desultory, narcissistic bombast. Navigating the hazardous waters between an erratic president and a deadly contagion, Dr. Fauci 
initially cut a heroic figure. Like Homer's Ulysses, steering his ship between Scylla and Charybdis, turning their backs to the foreboding horizon, trusting Americans manned the oars and blindly obeyed his commands, little realizing they were propelling our country toward the desolate destination where democracy goes to die. Throughout the first year of the crisis, Dr. Fauci's personal charisma and authoritative voice inspired confidence in his prescriptions and won him substantial, though not universal, affection. Many Americans, dutifully locked in their homes in compliance with Dr. Fauci's quarantine, took consolation in their capacity to join a Tony Fauci fan club, chillax on an I Heart Fauci throw pillow, sip from an In Fauci We Trust coffee mug, warm cold feet in Fauci socks and booties, gorge on Fauci donuts, post a honk for Dr. Fauci yard sign, or genuflect before a Dr. Fauci prayer candle. Fauci aficionados could choose from a variety of Fauci browser games and a squadron of Fauci action figures and bobbleheads, and could read his hagiography to their offspring from a worshipful children's book. At the height of the lockdown, Brad Pitt performed a reverential homage to Dr. Fauci on Saturday Night Live, and Barbara Streisand surprised him with a recorded message during a live Zoom birthday party in his honor. The New Yorker dubbed him America's Doctor. Dr. Fauci encouraged his own canonization and the disturbing inquisition against his blasphemous critics. In a June 9, 2021, Je suis l'état interview, he pronounced that Americans who questioned his statements were per se anti-science. Attacks on me, he explained, quite frankly, are attacks on science. The sentiment he expressed reminds us that blind faith in authority is a function of religion, not science. Science, like democracy, flourishes on skepticism toward official orthodoxies. Dr. Fauci's schoolboy scorn for citation and his acknowledgement to the New York Times that he had twice lied to Americans to promote his agendas on masks and herd immunity raised the prospect that some of his other scientific assertions were likewise noble lies to a credulous public he believes is unworthy of self-determination. In August 2021, Dr. Fauci's acolyte, CNN's television doctor Peter Hotez, published an article in a scientific journal calling for legislation to expand federal hate crime protections to make criticism of Dr. Fauci a felony. In declaring that he had no conflicts, Dr. Hotez, who says that vaccine skeptics should be snuffed out, evidently forgot the millions of dollars in grants he has taken from Dr. Fauci's NIAID since 1993 and more than $15 million from Dr. Fauci's partner, Bill Gates, for his Baylor University Tropical Medicine Institute. As we shall see, Dr. Fauci's direct and indirect control through NIH, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Wellcome Trust of some 57% of global biomedical research funding guarantees him this sort of obsequious homage from leading medical researchers allows him to craft and perpetuate the reigning global medical narratives and can fortify the canon that he, himself, is science incarnate.
high-visibility henchmen like Hotez, and pharma's financial control over the media through advertising dollars have made Dr. Fauci's pronouncements impervious to debate and endowed the NIAID director with personal virtues and medical gravitas supported by neither science nor his public health record. By the latter metric, his 50-year regime has been calamitous for public health and for democracy. His administration of the COVID pandemic was likewise a disaster. As the world watched, Tony Fauci dictated a series of policies that resulted in by far the most deaths and one of the highest percentage COVID-19 body counts of any nation on the planet. Only relentless propaganda and wall-to-wall censorship could conceal his disastrous mismanagement during COVID-19's first year. The U.S., with 4% of the world's population, suffered 14.5% of total COVID deaths. By September 30, 2021, mortality rates in the U.S. had climbed to 2,107 per million, compared to 139 per million in Japan. Anthony Fauci's Report Card Death Rates from COVID Per Million Population as of September 30, 2021. United States, 2,107 deaths per million. Iran, 1,449 deaths per million. Sweden, 1,444 deaths per million. Germany, 1,126 deaths per million. Cuba, 650 deaths per million. Jamaica, 630 deaths per million. Denmark, 455 deaths per million. India, 327 deaths per million. Finland, 194 deaths per million. Vietnam, 197 deaths per million. Norway, 161 deaths per million. Japan, 139 deaths per million. Pakistan, 128 deaths per million. Kenya, 97 deaths per million. South Korea, 47 deaths per million. Congo, Brazzaville, 35 deaths per million. Hong Kong, 28 deaths per million. China, 3 deaths per million. Tanzania, 0.86 deaths per million. After achieving these cataclysmically awful results, Teflon Tony's media savvy and his skills for deft maneuvering beguiled incoming President Joe Biden into appointing him as the new administration's COVID response director. Blinded by generously stoked fear of deadly disease against which Dr. Fauci seemed the only reliable bulwark, Americans failed to see the mounting evidence that Dr. Fauci's strategies were consistently failing to achieve promised results as he doggedly elevated pharma profits and bureaucratic powers over waning public health. As we shall see from this 50-year saga, Dr. Fauci's remedies are often more lethal than the diseases they pretend to treat. His COVID prescriptions were no exception. With his narrow focus on the solution of mass vaccination, Dr. Fauci never mentioned any of the many other costs associated with his policy directives. 
Anthony Fauci seems to have not considered that his unprecedented quarantine of the healthy would kill far more people than COVID, obliterate the global economy, plunge millions into poverty and bankruptcy, and grievously wound constitutional democracy globally. We have no way of knowing how many people died from isolation, unemployment, deferred medical care, depression, mental illness, obesity, stress, overdoses, suicide, addiction, alcoholism, and the accidents that so often accompany despair. We cannot dismiss the accusations that his lockdowns prove more deadly than the contagion. A June 24, 2021 BMJ study showed that U.S. life expectancy decreased by 1.9 years during the quarantine. Since COVID mortalities were mainly among the elderly, and the average age of death from COVID in the UK was 82.4, which was above the average lifespan, the virus could not by itself cause the astonishing decline. As we shall see, Hispanic and Black Americans often shoulder the heaviest burden of Dr. Fauci's public health adventures. In this respect, his COVID-19 countermeasures proved no exception. Between 2018 and 2020, the average Hispanic American lost around 3.9 years in longevity, while the average lifespan of a black American dropped by 3.25 years. This traumatic culling was unique to America. Between 2018 and 2020, the 1.9 year decrease in average life expectancy at birth in the U.S. was roughly eight and a half times the average decrease in 16 comparable countries all of which were measured in months, not years. I naively thought the pandemic would not make a big difference in the gap because my thinking was that it's a global pandemic, so every country is going to take a hit, said Stephen Wolf, Director Emeritus of the Center on Society and Health at Virginia Commonwealth University. What I didn't anticipate was how badly the U.S. would handle the pandemic. These are numbers we aren't at all used to seeing in this research. 0.1 years is something that normally gets attention in the field. So 3.9 years and 3.25 years and even 1.4 years is just horrible, Wolf continued. We haven't had a decrease of that magnitude since World War II. Cost of Quarantines Deaths as Dr. Fauci's policies took hold globally, 300 million humans fell into dire poverty, food insecurity, and starvation. Globally, the impact of lockdowns on health programs, food production, and supply chains plunged millions of people into severe hunger and malnutrition, said Alex Gutentag in Tablet magazine. According to the Associated Press, during 2020, 10,000 children died each month due to virus-linked hunger from global lockdowns. In addition, 500,000 children per month experienced wasting and stunting from malnutrition, up 6.7 million from last year's total of 47 million, which can permanently damage children physically and mentally, 
transforming individual tragedies into a generational catastrophe. In 2020, disruptions to health and nutrition services killed 228,000 children in South Asia. Deferred medical treatments for cancers, kidney failure, and diabetes killed hundreds of thousands of people and created epidemics of cardiovascular disease and undiagnosed cancer. Unemployment shock is expected to cause 890,000 additional deaths over the next 15 years. The lockdown disintegrated vital food chains, dramatically increased rates of child abuse, suicide, addiction, alcoholism, obesity, mental illness, as well as debilitating developmental delays, isolation, depression, and severe educational deficits in young children. One-third of teens and young adults reported worsening mental health during the pandemic. According to an Ohio State University study, suicide rates among children rose 50%. An August 11, 2021 study by Brown University found that infants born during the quarantine were short on average 22 IQ points, as measured by Baylor scale tests. Some 93,000 Americans died of overdoses in 2020, a 30% rise over 2019. Overdoses from synthetic opioids increased by 38.4%, and 11% of U.S. adults considered suicide in June 2020. Three million children disappeared from public school systems, and ER saw a 31% increase in adolescent mental health visits, according to Gutentag. Record numbers of young children failed to reach crucial developmental milestones. Millions of hospital and nursing home patients died alone without comfort or a final goodbye from their families. Dr. Fauci admitted that he never assessed the costs of desolation, poverty, unhealthy isolation, and depression fostered by his countermeasures. I don't give advice about economic things, Dr. Fauci explained. I don't give advice about anything other than public health, he continued, even though he was so clearly among those responsible for the economic and social costs. Economic Destruction and Shifting Wealth Upward During the COVID pandemic, Dr. Fauci served as ringmaster in the engineered demolition of America's economy. His lockdown predictably shattered the nation's once booming economic engine, putting 58 million Americans out of work and permanently bankrupting small businesses, including 41% of black-owned businesses, some of which took generations of investment to build. The business closures contributed to a run-up in the national deficit. The interest payments alone will cost almost $1 trillion annually. That ruinous debt will likely permanently bankrupt the New Deal programs, the social safety net that since 1945 fortified, nurtured, and sustained America's envied middle class. Government officials have already begun liquidating the almost 100-year legacies of the New Deal, New Frontier, the Great Society, and Obamacare to pay the accumulated lockdown debts. Will we find ourselves saying goodbye to school lunches, health care, WIC, Medicaid, Medicare, 
university scholarships, and other long-standing assistance programs. Enriching the Wealthy Dr. Fauci's business closures pulverized America's middle class and engineered the largest upward transfer of wealth in human history. In 2020, workers lost $3.7 trillion, while billionaires gained $3.9 trillion. Some 493 individuals became new billionaires, and an additional 8 million Americans dropped below the poverty line. The biggest winners were the robber barons, the very companies that were cheerleading Dr. Fauci's lockdown and censoring his critics. Big technology, big data, big telecom, big finance, big media behemoths, Michael Bloomberg, Rupert Murdoch, Viacom, and Disney and Silicon Valley internet titans like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Eric Schmidt, Sergey Brin, Larry Page, Larry Ellison, and Jack Dorsey. The very internet companies that snookered us all with the promise of democratizing communications made it impermissible for Americans to criticize their government or question the safety of pharmaceutical products. These companies propped up all official pronouncements while scrubbing all dissent. The same tech, data, and telecom robber barons, gorging themselves on the corpses of our obliterated middle class, rapidly transformed America's once-proud democracy into a censorship and surveillance police state from which they profit at every turn. CEO Satya Nadella boasted that Microsoft, by working with the CDC and the Gates-funded Johns Hopkins Center for Biosecurity, had used the COVID pandemic to achieve two years of digital transformation in two months. Microsoft Teams users ballooned to 200 million meeting participants in a single day, averaged more than 75 million active users compared to 20 million users in November 2019, and the company's stock value skyrocketed. Larry Ellison's company, Oracle, which partnered with the CIA to build new cloud services, won the contract to process all CDC vaccination data. Ellison's wealth increased by $34 billion in 2020. Mark Zuckerberg's wealth grew by $35 billion. Google's Sergey Brin by $41 billion. Jeff Bezos by $86 billion, Bill Gates by $22 billion, and Michael Bloomberg by nearly $7 billion. Ellison, Gates, and the other members of this government-industry collaboration used the lockdown to accelerate construction of their 5G network of satellites, antennae, biometric facial recognition, and track-and-trace infrastructure that they and their government and intelligence agency partners can use to mine and monetize our data, further suppress dissent to compel obedience to arbitrary dictates, and to manage the rage that comes as Americans finally wake up to the fact that this outlaw gang has stolen our democracy, our civil rights, our country, and our way of life while we huddled in orchestrated fear from a flu-like virus. With fears of COVID generously stoked, the dramatic and steady erosion of constitutional rights 
and fomenting of a global coup d'etat against democracy, the demolition of our economy, the obliteration of a million small businesses, the collapsing of the middle class, the evisceration of our Bill of Rights, the tidal wave of surveillance capitalism and the rising biosecurity state, and the stunning shifts in wealth and power going to a burgeoning oligarchy of high-tech Silicon Valley robber barons seemed to a dazed and uncritical America like it might be a reasonable price to pay for safety. And anyway, we were told, it's just for 15 days, or maybe 15 months, or however long it takes for Dr. Fauci to follow the data to his answer. Failing Upward Dr. Fauci's catastrophic failure to achieve beneficial health outcomes during the COVID-19 crisis is consistent with the disastrous declines in public health during his half-century running NIAID. For anyone who might have assumed that federal and public health bureaucrats survive and flourish by achieving improvements in public health, Dr. Fauci's durability at NIAID is a disheartening wake-up call. By any measure, he has consistently failed upward. The J. Edgar Hoover of public health has presided over cataclysmic declines in public health, including an exploding chronic disease epidemic that has made the Fauci generation, children born after his elevation to NIAID kingpin in 1984, the sickest generation in American history, and has made Americans among the least healthy citizens on the planet. His obsequious subservience to the big ag, big food, and pharmaceutical companies has left our children drowning in a toxic soup of pesticide residues, corn syrup, and processed foods, while also serving as pincushions for 69 mandated vaccine doses by age 18, none of them properly safety tested. When Dr. Fauci took office, America was still ranked among the world's healthiest populations. An August 2021 study by the Commonwealth Fund ranked America's healthcare system dead last among industrialized nations, with the highest infant mortality and the lowest life expectancy. If healthcare were an Olympic sport, the U.S. might not qualify in a competition with other high income nations, laments the study's lead author, Eric Schneider, who serves as senior vice president for policy and research at the Commonwealth Fund. Following World War II, life expectancy in the U.S. climbed for five decades, making Americans among the longest-lived people in the developed world. IQ also grew steadily by three points each decade since 1900. But as Tony Fauci spent the 1990s expanding the pharmaceutical and chemical paradigm instead of public health, the pace of both longevity and intelligence slowed. The life expectancy decrease widened the gap between the U.S. and its peers to nearly five years, and American children have lost seven IQ points since 2000. Under Dr. Fauci's leadership, the allergic, autoimmune, and chronic illnesses which Congress specifically charged NIAID to investigate and prevent have mushroomed 
to afflict 54% of children, up from 12.8% when he took over NIAID in 1984. Dr. Fauci has offered no explanation as to why allergic diseases like asthma, eczema, food allergies, allergic rhinitis, and anaphylaxis suddenly exploded beginning in 1989, five years after he came to power. On its website, NIAID boasts that autoimmune disease is one of the agency's top priorities. Some 80 autoimmune diseases, including juvenile diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis, Graves' disease, and Crohn's disease, which were practically unknown prior to 1984, suddenly became epidemic under his watch. Autism, which many scientists now consider an autoimmune disease, exploded from between 2 in 10,000 and 4 in 10,000 Americans when Tony Fauci joined NIAID to 1 in 34 today. Neurological diseases like ADD, ADHD, speech and sleep disorders, narcolepsy, facial tics, and Tourette syndrome have become commonplace in American children. The human health and economic costs of chronic disease dwarf the costs of all infectious diseases in the United States. By this decade's end, obesity, diabetes, and pre-diabetes are on track to debilitate 85% of America's citizens. America is among the 10 most overweight countries on Earth. The health impacts of these epidemics, which fall mainly on the young, eclipse even the most exaggerated health impacts of COVID-19. What is causing this cataclysm? Since genes don't cause epidemics, it must be environmental toxins. Many of these illnesses became epidemic in the late 1980s after vaccine manufacturers were granted government protection from liability and consequently accelerated their introduction of new vaccines. The manufacturer's inserts of the 69 vaccine doses list each of the now common illnesses, some 170 in total, as vaccine side effects. So vaccines are a potential culprit, but not the only one. Other possible perpetrators or accomplices that fit the applicable criterion. A sudden epidemic across all demographics beginning in 1989 are corn syrup, PFOA flame retardants, processed foods, cell phones and EMF radiation, chlorpyrifos, ultrasound, and neonicotinoid pesticides. The list is finite, and it would be a simple thing to design studies that give us these answers. Tracing the etiology of these diseases through epidemiological research, observational and bench studies, and animal research is exactly what Congress charged Dr. Fauci to perform. But Tony Fauci controls the public health bank book and has shown little interest in funding basic science to answer those questions. Is this because any serious investigation into the sources of the chronic disease epidemic would certainly implicate the powerful pharmaceutical companies and the chemical, agricultural, and processed food multinationals that Dr. Fauci and his 20-year business partner Bill Gates have devoted their careers to promoting? As we shall see, 
his capacity to curry favor with these merchants of pills, powders, potions, poisons, pesticides, pollutants, and pricks has been the key to Dr. Fauci's longevity at HHS. Is it fair to blame Dr. Fauci for a crisis that, of course, has many authors? Due to his vast budgetary discretion, his unique political access, his power over HHS and its various agencies, his moral authority, his moral flexibility, and his bully pulpit, Tony Fauci has more power than any other individual to direct public energies toward solutions. He has done the opposite. Instead of striving to identify the etiologies of the chronic disease pandemic, we shall see that Dr. Fauci has deliberately and systematically used his staggering power over federal scientific research, medical schools, medical journals, and the careers of individual scientists to derail inquiry and obstruct research that might provide the answers. Dr. Fauci's Farmination While some Republicans bridled warily at Dr. Fauci's accumulating power and seemingly arbitrary pronouncements, the alchemies of political tribalism and the relentlessly stoked terror of COVID-19 persuaded spellbound Democrats to close their eyes to the damning evidence that his COVID-19 policies were a catastrophic and dangerous failure. As an advocate for public health, robust science, and independent regulatory agencies, free from corruption and financial entanglements with pharma, I have battled Dr. Fauci for many years. I know him personally, and my impression of him is very different from my fellow Democrats, who first encountered him as the polished, humble, earnest, endearing, and long-suffering star of the televised White House COVID press conferences. Dr. Fauci played a historic role as the leading architect of agency capture, the corporate seizure of America's public health agencies by the pharmaceutical industry. Lamentably, Dr. Fauci's failure to achieve public health goals during the COVID pandemic are not anomalous errors, but consistent with a recurrent pattern of sacrificing public health and safety on the altar of pharmaceutical profits and self-interest. He consistently prioritized pharmaceutical industry profits over public health. Listeners to this audiobook will learn how, in exalting patented medicine Dr. Fauci has throughout his long career, routinely falsified science, deceived the public and physicians, and lied about safety and efficacy. Dr. Fauci's malefactions, detailed in this volume, include his crimes against the hundreds of black and Hispanic orphan and foster children whom he subjected to cruel and deadly medical experiments, and his role with Bill Gates in transforming hundreds of thousands of Africans into lab rats for low-cost clinical trials of dangerous experimental drugs that, once approved, remain financially out of reach for most Africans. You will learn how Dr. Fauci and Mr. Gates have turned the African continent into a dumping ground for expired, dangerous, and ineffective drugs, many of them discontinued for safety reasons in the U.S. and Europe. 
You will hear how Dr. Fauci's strange fascination with and generous investments in so-called gain-of-function experiments to engineer pandemic superbugs give rise to the ironic possibility that Dr. Fauci may have played a role in triggering the global contagion that two U.S. presidents entrusted him to manage. You will also hear about his two-decade strategy of promoting false pandemics as a scheme for promoting novel vaccines, drugs, and pharma profits. You will learn of his actions to conceal widespread contamination in blood and vaccines, his destructive vendettas against scientists who challenge the pharma paradigm, his deliberate sabotaging of patent-expired remedies against infectious diseases from HIV to COVID-19, to grease the skids for less effective but more profitable remedies. You will learn of the grotesque body counts that have accumulated in the wake of his cold-blooded focus on industry profits over public health. All his strategies during COVID, falsifying science to bring dangerous and ineffective drugs to market, suppressing and sabotaging competitive products that have lower profit margins, even if the cost is prolonging pandemics and losing thousands of lives, all of these share a common purpose, the myopic devotion to pharma. This book will show you that Tony Fauci does not do public health. He is a businessman who has used his office to enrich his pharmaceutical partners and expand the reach of influence that has made him the most powerful and despotic doctor in human history. For some listeners, reaching that conclusion will require crossing some new bridges. Many listeners, however, intuitively know the real Anthony Fauci and need only to see the facts illuminated and organized. I wrote this book so that Americans, both Democrat and Republican, can understand Dr. Fauci's pernicious role in allowing pharmaceutical companies to dominate our government and subvert our democracy, and to chronicle the key role Dr. Fauci has played in the current coup d'etat against democracy. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments, endnotes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this book. Chapter 1 Mismanaging a Pandemic My friend, have you ever been in a quarantine city? Then you cannot realize what you are asking me to do. To place such a curse on San Francisco would be worse than a hundred fires and earthquakes, and I love this city too well to do her such a frightful hurt. Rupert Blue public health service officer in charge of dealing with the 1907 plague outbreak. Blue subsequently served as fourth Surgeon General of the U.S. and President of the American Medical Association. 1. Arbitrary Decrees, Science-Free Medicine Dr. Fauci's strategy for managing the COVID-19 pandemic was to suppress viral spread by mandatory masking social distancing, quarantining the healthy, also known as lockdowns, while instructing COVID patients to return home and do nothing, receive no treatment whatsoever, until difficulties breathing sent them back to the hospital 
to submit to intravenous remdesivir and ventilation. This approach to ending an infectious disease contagion had no public health precedent and anemic scientific support. Predictably, it was grossly ineffective. America racked up the world's highest body counts. Medicines were available against COVID, inexpensive, safe medicines that would have prevented hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations and saved as many lives if only we'd used them in this country. But Dr. Fauci and his pharma collaborators deliberately suppressed those treatments in service to their single-minded objective, making America await salvation from their novel multi-billion dollar vaccines. Americans' native idealism will make them reluctant to believe that their government's COVID policies were so grotesquely ill-conceived, so unfounded in science, so tethered to financial interests, that they caused hundreds of thousands of wholly unnecessary deaths. But as you will hear, the evidence speaks for itself. Peer-reviewed science offered anemic, if any, support for masking, quarantines, and social distancing. And Dr. Fauci offered no citations or justifications to support his diktats. Both common sense and the weight of scientific evidence suggest that all these strategies, and unquestionably shutting down the global economy, caused far more injuries and deaths than they averted. Dr. Fauci was clearly aware that his mask decrees were contrary to overwhelming science. In July 2020, after switching course to recommend national mask mandates, Dr. Fauci told Nora O'Donnell with InStyle magazine that his earlier dismissal of mask efficacy was correct in the context of the time in which I said it and that he intended to prevent a consumer run on masks that might jeopardize their availability for frontline responders. But Dr. Fauci's emails reveal that he was giving the same advice privately. Moreover, his detailed explanations to the public and to high-level health regulators indicate he genuinely believed that ordinary masks had little to no efficacy against viral infection. In a February 5, 2020 email, for example, he advised his putative former boss, President Obama's Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Burwell, on the futility of masking the healthy. On February 17th, he invoked the same rationale in an interview with USA Today, a mask is much more appropriate for someone who is infected and you're trying to prevent them from infecting other people than it is in protecting you against infection. If you look at the masks that you buy in a drugstore, the leakage around that doesn't really do much to protect you. Now, in the United States, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever to wear a mask. During a January 28th speech to HHS regulators, he explained the fruitlessness of masking asymptomatic people. The one thing historically people need to realize, that even if there is some asymptomatic transmission, in all the history of respiratory-borne viruses of any type, Asymptomatic transmission has never been the driver of outbreaks. The driver of outbreaks is always a symptomatic person. Even if there's a rare asymptomatic person that might transmit, 
an epidemic is not driven by asymptomatic carriers. Consistent with Dr. Fauci's earlier statements, the peer-reviewed scientific literature has steadfastly refused to support masking the healthy as an effective barrier to viral spread, and Dr. Fauci offered a citation to justify his change of heart. A December 2020 comprehensive study of 10 million Wuhan residents confirmed Fauci's January 28, 2020 assertion that asymptomatic transmission of COVID-19 is infinitesimally rare. Furthermore, some 52 studies, all available on NIH's website, find that ordinary masking, using less than an N95 respirator, doesn't reduce viral infection rates, even, surprisingly, in institutional settings like hospitals and surgical theaters. Moreover, some 25 additional studies attribute to masking a grim retinue of harms, including respiratory and immune system illnesses, as well as dermatological, dental, gastrointestinal, and psychological injuries. Fourteen of these studies are randomized, peer-reviewed placebo studies. There is no well-constructed study that persuasively suggests masks have convincing efficacy against COVID-19 that would justify accepting the harms associated with masks. Finally, retrospective studies on Dr. Fauci's mask mandates confirm that they were bootless. Regional analysis in the United States does not show that mask mandates had any effect on case rates, despite 93% compliance. Moreover, according to CDC data, 85% of people who contracted COVID-19 reported wearing a mask, according to Gutentag. Dr. Fauci observed in March 2020 that a mask's only real efficacy may be in making people feel a little better. Perhaps he recognized that what masking lacked in efficacy against contagion, it compensated for with powerful psychological effects. These symbolic powers demonstrated strategic benefits for the larger enterprise of encouraging public compliance with draconian medical mandates. Dr. Fauci's switch to endorsing masks after first recommending against them came at a time of increasing political polarization, and masks quickly became important tribal badges, signals of rectitude for those who embraced Dr. Fauci and the stigmata of blind obedience to undeserving authority among those who balked. Moreover, masking, by amplifying everyone's fear, helped inoculate the public against critical thinking. By serving as persistent reminders that each of our fellow citizens was a potentially dangerous and germ-infected threat to us, masks increased social isolation and fostered divisions and fractionalization, thereby impeding organized political resistance. The impact of masking on the national psyche reminded me of the subtle contribution of the duck-and-cover drills of my youth, drills that sustained and cemented the militaristic ideology of the Cold War. Those futile exercises reinforced what my uncle John F. Kennedy's defense secretary Robert McNamara 
called National Mass Psychosis. By suggesting to Americans that full-scale nuclear war was possible, but also survivable, ruinous investments in that project were justified. For the government and mandarins of the military-industrial complex, this absurd narrative yielded trillions in appropriations. Social distancing mandates also rested on a dubious scientific footing. In September 2021, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb admitted that the six-foot distancing rule that Dr. Fauci and his HHS colleagues imposed upon Americans was arbitrary and not, after all, science-backed. The process for making that policy choice, Gottlieb continued, is a perfect example of the lack of rigor around how CDC made recommendations. Finally, the lockdowns of the healthy were so unprecedented that WHO's official pandemic protocols recommended against them. Some WHO officials were passionate on the topic. Among them, Professor David Nabarro, senior envoy on COVID-19, a position reporting to the Director General. On October 8, 2020, he said, We in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of controlling this virus. We may well have a doubling of world poverty by next year. We'll have at least a doubling of child malnutrition because children are not getting meals at school and their parents and poor families are not able to afford it. This is a terrible, ghastly, global catastrophe, actually, and so we really do appeal to all world leaders. Stop using lockdown as your primary control method. Lockdowns just have one consequence that you must never, ever belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer. As discussed, Dr. Fauci and other officials made no inquiry or claims as to whether lockdowns would cause more harm and death than they averted. Subsequent studies have strongly suggested that lockdowns had no impact in reducing infection rates. There is no convincing difference in COVID infections and deaths between laissez-faire jurisdictions and those that enforced rigid lockdowns and masks. Noble Lies and Bad Data Dr. Fauci's mask deceptions were among several noble lies that his critics complained reveal a manipulative and deceptive disposition undesirable in an even-handed public health official. Dr. Fauci explained to the New York Times that he had upgraded his estimate of the vaccine coverage needed to ensure herd immunity from 70% in March to 80-90% to in September, not based on science, but rather in response to polling that indicated rising rates of vaccine acceptance. He regularly expressed his belief that post-infection immunity was highly likely, with occasional waffling on this topic, although he took the public position that natural immunity did not contribute to protecting the population. He supported COVID jabs for previously infected Americans, defying overwhelming scientific evidence that post-COVID inoculations were both unnecessary and dangerous. Under questioning on September 9, 
2021, Dr. Fauci conceded he could cite no scientific justification for this policy. In September 2021, in a statement justifying COVID vaccine mandates to school children, Dr. Fauci dreamily recounted his own grade school measles and mumps vaccines, an unlikely memory since those vaccines weren't available until 1963 and 1967, and Dr. Fauci attended grade school in the 1940s. Dr. Fauci's little perjuries about masks, measles, mumps, herd immunity, and natural immunity attest to his dismaying willingness to manipulate facts to serve a political agenda. If the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed anything, it is that public health officials have based their many calamitous directives for managing COVID-19 on vacillating and science-free beliefs about masks, lockdowns, infection, and fatality rates, asymptomatic transmission, and vaccine safety and efficacy, which took every direction and sowed confusion, division, and polarization among the public and medical experts. Dr. Fauci's libertine approach to facts may have contributed to what, for me, was the most troubling and infuriating feature of all the public health responses to COVID. The blatant and relentless manipulation of data to serve the vaccine agenda became the apogee of a year of stunning regulatory malpractice. High-quality and transparent data, clearly documented, timely rendered, and publicly available are the sine qua non of competent public health management. During a pandemic, reliable and comprehensive data are critical for determining the behavior of the pathogen, identifying vulnerable populations, rapidly measuring the effectiveness of interventions, mobilizing the medical community around cutting-edge disease management, and inspiring cooperation from the public. The shockingly low quality of virtually all relevant data pertinent to COVID-19, and the quackery, the obfuscation, the cherry-picking and blatant perversion would have scandalized, offended, and humiliated every prior generation of American public health officials. Too often, Dr. Fauci was at the center of these systemic deceptions. The mistakes were always in the same direction, inflating the risks of coronavirus and the safety and efficacy of vaccines in order to stoke public fear of COVID and provoke mass compliance. The excuses for his mistakes range from blaming the public, now blaming the unvaccinated, blaming politics, and explaining his gyrations by saying, you've got to evolve with the science. At the outset of the pandemic, Dr. Fauci used wildly inaccurate modeling that overestimated U.S. deaths by 525%. Scammer and pandemic fabricator Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London was their author, with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of $148.8 million. Dr. Fauci used this model as justification for his lockdowns. Dr. Fauci acquiesced to CDC's selective protocol changes for completing death certificates in a way that inflated the claimed deaths from COVID and thus inflated its infection mortality rate. 
CDC later admitted that only 6% of COVID deaths occurred in entirely healthy individuals. The remaining 94% suffered from an average of 3.8 potentially fatal comorbidities. Regulators misused PCR tests that CDC belatedly admitted in August 2021 were incapable of distinguishing COVID from other viral illnesses. Dr. Fauci tolerated their use at inappropriately high amplitudes of 37 and up to 45, even though Fauci had told Vince Racaniello that tests employing cycle thresholds of 35 and above were very unlikely to indicate the presence of live virus that could replicate. In July 2020, Fauci remarked that at these levels, a positive result is just dead nucleotides, period, yet did nothing to modify testing so it might be more accurate. As America's COVID czar, Dr. Fauci never complained about CDC's decision to skip autopsies from deaths attributed to vaccines. This practice allowed CDC to persistently claim that all deaths following vaccination were unrelated to vaccination. CDC also refused to conduct follow-up medical inquiries among people claiming vaccine injuries. Inspired by rich incentives to classify every patient as a COVID-19 victim, Medicare paid hospitals $39,000 per ventilator when treating COVID-19 and only $13,000 for garden-variety respiratory infections. Hospitals contributed to the deception. Once more, Dr. Fauci winked at the fraud. Dr. Fauci's refusal to fix the HHS's notoriously dysfunctional Vaccine Injury Surveillance System, VAERS, constituted inexcusable negligence. HHS's own studies indicate that VAERS may be understating vaccine injuries by over 99%. The public never received facts about infection fatality rates or age-stratified risks for COVID with the kind of clarity that might have allowed them and their physicians to make evidence-based personal risk assessments. Instead, federal officials relied on vagueness and deception to recklessly overestimate the dangers from COVID in every age group. All of these deceptions riddled virtually every mainstream media report, particularly those by CNN and The New York Times, leaving the public with a vastly inflated and cataclysmically inaccurate impression of its lethality. Public surveys showed that just as Fox News audiences were shockingly misinformed following the 9-11 bombings, CNN viewers and New York Times readers were catastrophically misinformed about the facts of COVID-19 during 2020. Successive Gallup polling showed that the average Democrat believed that 50% of COVID infections resulted in hospitalizations. The real number was less than 1%. Trust the experts. Instead of demanding blue-ribbon safety science and encouraging honest, open, and responsible debate on the science, badly compromised government health officials charged with managing the COVID-19 pandemic collaborated with mainstream and social media to shut down discussion on key public health questions. 
They silenced doctors who offered any early treatments that might compete with vaccines or who refused to pledge unquestioning faith in zero liability, shoddily tested experimental vaccines. The chaotic and confusing data collection and interpretation allowed regulators to justify their arbitrary diktats under the cloak of scientific consensus. Instead of citing scientific studies or clear data to justify mandates for masks, lockdowns, and vaccines, our medical rulers cited Dr. Fauci, or WHO, CDC, FDA, and NIH, captive agencies, to legitimize the medical technocracy's assumption of dangerous new powers. Dr. Fauci's aficionados, including President Biden and the cable and network news anchors, counseled Americans to trust the experts. Such advice is both anti-democratic and anti-science. Science is dynamic. Experts frequently differ on scientific questions, and their opinions can vary in accordance with and demands of politics, powers, and financial self-interest. Nearly every lawsuit I have ever litigated pitted highly credentialed experts from opposite sides against each other, with all of them swearing under oath to diametrically antithetical positions based on the same set of facts. Telling people to trust the experts is either naive or manipulative or both. All of Dr. Fauci's intrusive mandates and his deceptive use of data tended to stoke fear and amplify public desperation for the anticipated arrival of vaccines that would transfer billions of dollars from taxpayers to pharmaceutical executives and shareholders. Some of America's most accomplished scientists and the physicians leading the battle against COVID in the trenches came to believe that Anthony Fauci's do-or-die obsession with novel mRNA vaccines and Gilead's expensive patented antiviral remdesivir prompted him to ignore or even suppress effective early treatments, causing hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths while also prolonging the pandemic. Fortifying Immune Systems I was struck during COVID-19's early months that America's doctor, apparently preoccupied with his single vaccine solution, did little in the way of telling Americans how to bolster their immune response. He never took time during his daily White House briefings from March to May 2020 to instruct Americans to avoid tobacco. Smoking and e-cigarettes, vaping, double death rates from COVID. To get plenty of sunlight and to maintain adequate vitamin D levels, nearly 60% of patients with COVID-19 were vitamin D deficient upon hospitalization, with men in the advanced stages of COVID-19 pneumonia showing the greatest deficit, or to diet, exercise, and lose weight. 78% of Americans hospitalized for COVID-19 were overweight or obese. Quite the contrary, Dr. Fauci's lockdowns caused Americans to gain an average of two pounds per month and to reduce their daily steps by 27%. He didn't recommend avoiding sugar and soft drinks, processed foods and chemical residues, all of which amplify inflammation, compromise immune response, 
and disrupt the gut biome, which governs the immune system. During the centuries that science has fruitlessly sought remedies against coronavirus, a.k.a. the common cold, only zinc has repeatedly proven its efficacy in peer-reviewed studies. Zinc impedes viral replication, prophylaxing against colds and abbreviating their duration. The groaning shelves that commercial pharmacies devote to zinc-based cold remedies attest to its extraordinary efficacy. Yet Anthony Fauci never advised Americans to increase zinc uptake following exposure to infection. Dr. Fauci's neglect of natural immune response was consistent with the pervasive hostility towards any non-vaccine intervention that characterized the federal regulatory gestalt. On April 30, 2021, Canadian Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons threatened to de-license any doctor who prescribed non-vaccine health strategies, including vitamin D. They are trying to erase any notion of natural immunity, says Canadian vaccine researcher Dr. Jessica Rose, Ph.D., MSc, BSc. Pretty soon, the incessant lies and propaganda will have successfully instilled in the masses that the only hope for staying alive is via injection, pill-popping, so in sum, no natural immunity. In a podcast interview on October 1, 2021, Washington Post reporter Ashley Fetters Malloy pretended to expose misinformation about COVID-19 by broadcasting misinformation. There's a pervasive idea that your body and your immune system can be healthy enough to ward off COVID-19, which, of course, we know it's a novel coronavirus. No one's body can. No one's body is healthy enough to recognize and just totally ward this off without a vaccine. Clearly, this is false information. Throughout 2020, before vaccines were available, some 99.9% of people's natural immune systems protected their owners from severe illness and death. The CDC and World Health Organization, indeed all global health authorities, have recognized that healthy people with healthy immune systems bear minimal risk from COVID. Indeed, many people, according to our health authorities, have an immune response sufficient that they don't even know they have COVID. Malloy's pronouncement that humans cannot fight off COVID-19 without a vaccine is misinformation in its purest form. Instead of urging calm and telling us, as FDR did during the depths of the Depression, that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, all of Dr. Fauci's prescriptions and communications seemed intended to maximize stress and trauma, enforced isolation, Mandated masking, business closures, evictions and bankruptcies, lockdowns, and separating children from parents and parents from grandparents. We now know that fear, stress, and trauma wreak havoc on our immune systems. Early Treatment His critics argue that Dr. Fauci's slow the spread, flatten the curve, Wait for the jab strategy, all in support of a long term bet on unproven vaccines, 
represented a profound and unprecedented departure from accepted public health practice. But most troubling were Dr. Fauci's policies of ignoring and outright suppressing the early treatment of infected patients who were often terrified. The best practices for defeating an infectious disease epidemic, says Yale epidemiologist Harvey Reich, dictate that you quarantine and treat the sick, protect the most vulnerable, and aggressively develop repurposed therapeutic drugs and use early treatment protocols to avoid hospitalizations. Reich is one of the leading global authorities in clinical treatment protocols. He is the editor of two high-gravitas journals and the author of over 350 peer-reviewed publications. Other researchers have cited those studies over 44,000 times. Reich points out a hard truth that should have informed our COVID control strategy. Unless you are an island nation prepared to shut out the world, you can't stop a global viral pandemic, but you can make it less deadly. Our objective should have been to devise treatments that would reduce hospitalization and death. We could have easily defanged COVID-19 so that it was less lethal than a seasonal flu. We could have done this very quickly. We could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Dr. Peter McCullough concurs. Once a highly transmissible virus like COVID has a beachhead in a population, it is inevitable that it will spread to every individual who lacks immunity. You can slow the spread, but you cannot prevent it any more than you can prevent the tide from rising. McCullough was an internist and cardiologist on staff at the Baylor University Medical Center and the Baylor Heart and Vascular Hospital in Dallas, Texas. His 600 peer-reviewed articles in the National Library of Medicine make McCullough the most published physician in history in the field of kidney disease related to heart disease, a lethal sequela of COVID-19. Before COVID-19, he was editor of two major journals. His recent publications include over 40 on COVID-19, including two landmark studies on critical care of the disease. His two breakthrough papers on the early treatment of COVID-19 in the American Journal of Medicine and reviews in cardiovascular medicine in 2020 are by far the most downloaded documents on the subject. I've had COVID-19 myself with pulmonary involvement, he told me. My wife has had it. On my wife's side of the family, we've had a fatality. I believe I have as much or more medical authority to give my opinion as anybody in the world. McCullough observes that we could have dramatically reduced COVID fatalities and hospitalizations using early treatment protocols and repurposed drugs including ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and many, many others. Dr. McCullough has treated some 2,000 COVID patients with these therapies. McCullough points out that hundreds of peer-reviewed studies now show that early treatment could have averted some 80% of deaths attributed to COVID. The strategy from the outset should have been implementing protocols to stop hospitalizations through early treatment of Americans who tested positive for COVID but were still asymptomatic. If we had done that, we could have pushed case fatality rates below those we see with seasonal flu, 
and ended the bottlenecks in our hospitals. We should have rapidly deployed off-the-shelf medications with proven safety records and subjected them to rigorous risk-benefit decision-making, McCullough continues. Using repurposed drugs, we could have ended this pandemic by May 2020 and saved 500,000 American lives, but for Dr. Fauci's hard-headed tunnel vision on new vaccines and remdesivir. Pulmonary and critical care specialist Dr. Pierre Corey agrees with McCullough's estimate. The efficacy of some of these drugs as prophylaxis is almost miraculous. Plus, early intervention in the week after exposure stops viral replication and prevents development of cytokine storm and entrance into the pulmonary phase, says Dr. Corey. We could have stopped the pandemic in its tracks in the spring of 2020. Reich, McCullough, and Corey are among the large chorus of experts, including Nobel laureate Luc Montagnier, who argue that by treating infected patients at home during the early stages of the illness, we could have averted cataclysmic lockdowns and found medicine resources for protecting vulnerable populations while encouraging the spread of the disease in age groups with extremely low risk in order to achieve permanent herd immunity. They point out that natural immunity in all known cases is superior to vaccine-induced immunity, being both more durable, it often lasts a lifetime, and broader spectrum, meaning it provides a shield against subsequent variants. Vaccinating citizens with natural immunity should never have been our public health policy, says Dr. Corey. Dr. Fauci's strategy committed hundreds of billions of societal resources on a high-risk gambit to develop novel technology vaccines and virtually nothing toward developing repurposed medications that are effective against COVID. That strategy kept the medical treatment on hold globally for an entire year as a readily treatable respiratory virus ravaged population, says Corey. It is absolutely shocking that he recommended no outpatient care, not even vitamin D, despite the fact he takes it himself, and much of the country is vitamin D deficient. Dr. Corey is president of Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, a former associate professor and medical director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin Medical School Hospital and the Critical Care Service Chief at Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee. His milestone work on critical care ultrasonography won him the British Medical Association's President's Choice Award in 2015. Reich, McCullough, and Corey are also among the hundreds of scientists and physicians who express shock that Dr. Fauci made no effort to identify repurposed medicines. Says Corey, I find it appalling that there was no consultation process with treating physicians. Medicine is about consultation. You had Burks, Fauci, and Redfield doing press conferences every day and handing down these arbitrary diktats, and not one of them ever treated a COVID patient or worked in an emergency room or ICU. They knew nothing. 
As I watched the White House task force on TV, recalls Dr. McCullough, no one even said that hospitalizations and deaths were the bad outcome of COVID-19, that they were going to put together a team of doctors to identify protocols and therapeutics to stop these hospitalizations and deaths. Dr. McCullough argues that, as COVID czar, Dr. Fauci should have created an international communications network linking the world's 11 million frontline doctors to gather real-time tips, innovative safety protocols, and to develop the best prophylactic and early treatment practices. He should have created hotlines and dedicated websites for medical professionals to call in with treatment questions and to consult, collect, catalog, and propagate the latest innovations for prophylaxing vulnerable and exposed individuals and treating early infections so as to avert hospitalizations. Dr. Corey agrees. The outcome we should have been trying to prevent is hospitalizations. You don't just sit around and wait for an infected patient to become ill. Dr. Fauci's treatment strategies all began once all these under-medicated patients were hospitalized. By that time, it was too late for many of them. It was insane. It was perverse. It was unethical. Dr. McCullough says that Dr. Fauci should have created treatment centers for ambulatory patients and field clinics specializing in treating asymptomatic or early-stage COVID. He should have been encouraging doctors to use satellite clinics to conduct small outpatient clinical trials to quickly identify the most effective protocols, drugs, and therapeutics. Professor Reich concurs. We should have deployed teams of doctors all over the world, doing short-term clinical trials and testing promising drugs and reporting successful protocols. The endpoints were obvious, preventing hospitalizations and deaths. In addition to rapidly developing and continuously updating protocols and remedies, McCullough and Corey say that the government failed to perform the essential duty of a public health regulator during modern pandemics to publish the best early treatment protocols on NIH's website and then establish communication lines call centers to foster consultation and information sharing and web pages to share, broadcast, and update the latest remedies and continually escalate public knowledge about the most successful strategies. Dr. McCullough adds, we should have created information and communication centers where treating physicians and hospitals could get round-the-clock, up-to-date bulletins with data. Instead, doctors who wanted to provide their infected patients with early treatment were out of luck. Nursing Homes and Quarantine Facilities Dr. Reich says that in addition to developing early treatment protocols, Public health officials should have made sure that elderly patients remained in quarantine hospitals until no longer contagious. It's obvious that we should have had quarantine facilities so we wouldn't be sending infected patients to crowded nursing homes. Instead, we should have housed them in safe facilities and protected them with cutting-edge care. Reich points out that taxpayers spent $660 million building field hospitals across the country. Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo and other Democratic governors kept these facilities empty 
to maintain bed inventories in anticipation of the flood of patients inaccurately predicted by the fear-mongering models, ginned up by two Gates-funded organizations, IMHE and Royal College of London, and then anointed as gospel by Dr. Fauci, seemingly as part of the crusade to generate public panic. With those quarantine centers standing empty, those governors sent infected elderly back to crowded nursing homes, where they spread the disease to the most vulnerable population with lethal effect. Reich points out that half the deaths in New York and one-third nationally were among elder care facility residents. Dr. Fauci made another inexplicable policy choice of not supplying the nursing homes with monoclonal antibodies where they might have saved thousands of lives. With Operation Warp Speed, we had monoclonal antibodies that were high-tech and fully FDA-approved by November 2020, long before the vaccines, says Dr. McCullough. Monoclonal antibodies work great, but they're not suitable for outpatients because they are administered IV. It's therefore perfect for nursing homes. About one-third of COVID deaths occurred in the nursing homes and ALFs across the U.S. during the pandemic. Dr. Fauci should have equipped both nursing homes and quarantine hospitals with monoclonal antibodies, said Reich. Instead, he obstructed these institutions from administering that medicine. It was a kind of staggering, savage act of malpractice and negligence to deny this remedy to elder care facilities at a time when the elderly were dying at a rate of 10,000 per week. You need, in short, to do the opposite of everything they did. It's difficult to identify anything they did that was right, says McCullough. Independent Doctors into the Breach Early in the pandemic, Corey and his mentor, Dr. Paul Merrick, professor of medicine and chief of division of pulmonary and critical care medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School, began assembling the world's most highly published and accomplished critical care specialists to rapidly develop functional COVID treatments. Each of the core five founders of FLCCC is globally renowned for having made significant pre-COVID contributions to the science of critical care and pulmonary illnesses. Some 1,693 frontline physicians globally now belong to their alliance. Early in the pandemic, these doctors stepped into the breach left by the government agencies and pandemic centers and began coordinating the development of early treatments with repurposed drugs. They quickly proved that they could drastically reduce COVID's lethality. Instead of winning applause as medical healers, their success at treating COVID made them enemies of the state. Long before he heard of Pierre Corey or FLCCC, Dr. Peter McCullough reached the same conclusions about the futility and immorality of the federal effort and felt the same indignation and determination to change things. By April and May, I noticed a disturbing trend, recalls McCullough. The trend was no effort to treat patients who are infected with COVID-19 at home or in nursing homes, and it almost seemed as if patients were intentionally not being treated, allowed to sit at home, and get to the point where they couldn't breathe and then be admitted to the hospital. Dr. Fauci adopted this unprecedented protocol 
of telling doctors to let patients diagnosed with a positive COVID test go home untreated, leaving them in terror and spreading the disease until breathing difficulties forced their return to hospitals. There they faced two deadly remedies, remdesivir and ventilators. I experienced my own personal frustrations with this bewildering policy. When in December 2020, I asked my 93-year-old mother's physician to describe her treatment plan if she got a positive PCR, he told me, there is really nothing we can do unless she starts having trouble breathing. Then we will send her up to Mass General for ventilation. When I asked him about using ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, he shrugged his shoulders. He had never heard of their use in COVID patients. There is no early treatment for COVID, he assured me. Dr. Fauci's choice to deny infected Americans early treatment was not just a bad public health strategy. It was, McCullough avows, cruelty at a population level. Says McCullough, never in history have doctors deliberately treated patients with this kind of barbarism. I told myself, I am not going to tolerate that in my practice or on a national level or worldwide, Dr. McCullough told me. Realizing that COVID had to be fought on multiple fronts, McCullough began contacting physicians in other nations who were reporting success against the disease, including doctors in Italy, Greece, Canada, across Europe, and in Bangladesh and South Africa. McCullough continues, If this had been any other form of pneumonia, a respiratory illness, or any other infectious illness in the human body, we know that if we start early, we can actually treat much more easily than wait until patients are very sick. McCullough says that the rule holds true for COVID-19. We learned quickly that it takes about two weeks for someone infected with COVID to get sick enough at home to require hospitalization. Frontline clinical doctors quickly recognized that the disease was operating through multiple pathways, each requiring their own treatment protocol. There were three major parts of the illness, says McCullough. One, the virus was replicating for as long as two weeks. Two, there was incredible inflammation in the body. And three, that was followed by blood clotting. He adds, by April 2020, most doctors understood a single drug was not going to be enough to treat this illness. We had to use drugs in combination. We quickly developed three principles, says McCullough. His three-step protocol was as follows. Use medications to slow down the virus. Use medications to attenuate or reduce inflammation. Address blood clotting. McCullough and his global partners quickly identified a pharmacopoeia of off-the-shelf treatments demonstrating extraordinary efficacy against each stage of COVID when administered early in the course of the disease. McCullough chronicles the rapid pace with which frontline doctors uncovered rich apothecaries of effective COVID remedies. HHS's early studies supported hydroxychloroquine's efficacy against coronavirus since 2005, and by March 2020, doctors from New York to Asia were using it against COVID with extraordinary effect. That month, McCullough and other physicians at his medical center organized with the FDA one of the first prophylactic protocols using hydroxychloroquine. We had terrific data on ivermectin, 
from the medical teams in Bangladesh and elsewhere by early summer 2020. So now we had two cheap generics. McCullough and his growing team of 50-plus frontline doctors discovered that while HCQ and IVM work well against COVID, adding other medications boosts outcomes drastically. These included azithromycin or doxycycline, zinc, vitamin D, Celebrex, bromhexine, NAC, IV vitamin C, and quercetin. McCullough's team realized that, like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, quercetin, that ubiquitous health store nutraceutical, is an ionophore, meaning that it facilitates zinc uptake in the cells, destroying the capacity of coronavirus to replicate. The Canadians came on with colchicine in a high-quality trial based on an initial Greek trial, McCullough continued. We learned more from experts at UCLA and elsewhere with respect to blood clotting and the need for aspirin and blood thinners. We got early approval for monoclonal antibodies. It was later learned that both fluvoxamine and famotidine could play roles in multidrug treatment. LSU Medical School professor Paul Harch discovered peer-reviewed papers from China, where researchers there had been using hyperbaric chambers, HBOT, with stunning success. Between April and May, a group of NYU researchers reproduced that success by getting patients off ventilators and quickly recovering 18 of 20 ventilator cases using HBOT. Yale is currently conducting Phase 3 with stellar early results. There were many other promising treatments. Asian nations were using saline nasal lavages to great effect to reduce viral loads and transmission. McCullough discovered he could prophylax patients and drop viral load and prevent transmission with a variety of other oral nasal rinses and dilute virucidal agents including povidone iodine, hydrogen peroxide, hypochlorite, and Listerine or mouthwash with cetylpyridinium chloride. Mass General's infectious disease maven Dr. Michael Callahan had seen hundreds of patients in Wuhan in January 2020 and assessed the impressive efficacy of Pepsid in over-the-counter indigestion medicine. The Japanese were already using prednisone, budesonide, and famotidine with extraordinary results. By July 1st, McCullough and his team had developed the first protocol based on signals of benefit and acceptable safety. They submitted the protocol to the American Journal of Medicine. That study, titled The Pathophysiologic Basis and Clinical Rationale for Early Ambulatory Treatment of COVID-19, quickly became the world's most downloaded paper to help doctors treat COVID-19. It is extraordinary that Dr. Fauci never published a single treatment protocol before that, says McCullough, and that America's doctor has never to date published anything on how to treat a COVID patient. It shocks the conscience that there is still no official protocol. Anyone who tries to publish a new treatment protocol will find themselves airtight blocked by the journals that are all under Fauci's control. 
The Chinese published their own early treatment protocol on March 3, 2020, using many of the same categories of prophylactic and early treatment drugs uncovered by McCullough, chloroquine, a cousin of hydroxychloroquine, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, antihistamines, a variety of steroids, and probiotics to stabilize and fortify the immune system and apothecaries of traditional Chinese medicines, vitamins, and minerals, including a variety of compounds containing quercetin, zinc, and glutathione precursors. The Chinese made early treatment the central priority of their COVID strategy. They used intense and intrusive track-and-trace surveillance to identify and then immediately hospitalize and treat every COVID-infected Chinese. Early treatment helped the Chinese to end their pandemic by April 2020. We could have done the same, says McCullough. Though now he is often censored, the AMA still lists Dr. McCullough's study as the most frequently downloaded paper for 2020. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS, downloaded and turned McCullough's AMA article into its official treatment guide. AAPS Director Dr. Jeremy Snavely told me in August 2021 that the guide had 122,000 downloads. We figure it has been seen by over a million people. It's the only trusted guide. Our phone never stops ringing. Mostly the calls are from physicians and patients desperate for the help they cannot get from any HHS website. By autumn, frontline physicians had assembled a pharmacopoeia of repurposed drugs, all of which were effective against COVID. By that time, more than 200 studies supported treatment with hydroxychloroquine and 60 studies supported ivermectin. We combined these medicines with doxycycline, azithromycin, to suppress infection, says McCullough. Another meta-analysis supported the use of prednisone and hydrocortisone and other widely available steroids to combat inflammation. Three studies supported the use of inhaled budesonide against COVID. An Oxford University study, published in February 2021, demonstrated that that treatment could reduce hospitalizations by 90% in low-risk patients. And a publication in April 2021 showed that recovery was faster for high-risk patients, too. Furthermore, a very large study supported colchicine as an anti-inflammatory. Finally, McCullough's growing array of physicians had observational data from late-stage treatment of hospitalized patients with full-dose aspirin and antithrombotics, including enoxaparin, apixaban, rivaroxaban, dabigatran, idoxaban, and full-dose anticoagulation with low-molecular weight heparin for blood clots. We were able to show that doctors can work with four to six drugs in combination, supplemented by vitamins and nutraceuticals, including zinc, vitamins D and C, and quercetin. And they can guide patients at home, even the highest-risk seniors, and avoid a dreaded outcome of hospitalization and death, said McCullough. Working with a large practice in the Plano-Frisco area north of Dallas, 
McCullough and his team administered this protocol to some 800 patients and demonstrated an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. Another practice led by the legendary Dr. Vladimir Zelenko in Monroe, New York, showed similar astonishing results. Independent physicians unaffiliated with the government or the universities that are so dependent on Dr. Fauci's good favor were discovering new COVID treatments by the day. Researchers treated 738 randomly selected Brazilian COVID-19 patients with another adjuvant, fluvoxamine, identified early in the pandemic for its potential to reduce cytokine storms. Another 733 received a placebo between January 20th and August 6th of 2021. The researchers tracked every patient receiving fluvoxamine during the trial for 28 days and found about a 30% reduction in events among those receiving fluvoxamine compared to those who did not. Like almost all the other remedies, it is cheap and proven safe by long use. Flavoxamine costs about $4 per 10-day course. Flavoxamine has been used since the 1990s, and its safety profile is well known. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are not necessary nor sufficient on their own. There are plenty of molecules that treat COVID, says McCullough. Even if hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin had become so politicized that no one wanted to allow these drugs to be used, we could use other drugs, anti-inflammatories, antihistamines, as well as anticoagulants, and actually stop the illness and, again, treat it to reduce hospitalization and death. When the pandemic started, most of the other medical practices in the Detroit area shut down, Dr. David Brownstein told me. I had a meeting with my staff and my six partners. I told them we are going to stay open and treat COVID. They wanted to know how. I said, we've been treating viral diseases here for 25 years. COVID can't be any different. In all that time, our office has never lost a single patient to flu or flu-like illness. We treated people in their cars with oral vitamins A, C, and D, and iodine. We administered IV solution outside all winter with IV hydrogen peroxide and vitamin C. We'd have them put their butts out the car window and shot them up with intramuscular ozone. We nebulized them with hydrogen peroxide and Lugol's iodine. We only rarely used ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We treated 715 patients and had 10 hospitalizations and no deaths. Early treatment was the key. We weren't allowed to talk about it. The whole medical establishment was trying to shut down early treatment and silence all the doctors who talked about successes. A whole generation of doctors just stopped practicing medicine. When we talked about it, the whole cartel came for us. I've been in litigation with the medical board for a year. When we posted videos from some of our recovered patients, they went viral. One of the videos had a million views. FTC filed a motion against us, and we had to take everything down. In July 2020, 
Brownstein and his seven colleagues published a peer-reviewed article describing their stellar success with early treatment. FTC sent him a letter warning him to take it down. No one wanted Americans to know that you didn't have to die from COVID. It's 100% treatable, says Dr. Brownstein. We proved it. No one had to die. Meanwhile, adds Dr. Brownstein, we've seen lots of really bad vaccine side effects in our patients. We've had seven strokes, some ending in severe paralysis. We had three cases of pulmonary embolism, two blood clots, two cases of Graves' disease, and one death. Repurposed medicines, the record shows, could also have drastically reduced death among hospitalized patients. One of Dr. Corey's co-founders of FLCCC, Houston Memorial Medical Center's chief medical officer, Dr. Joe Varone, worked 400 days in a row, seeing between 20 to 30 patients a day. Using ivermectin and a cocktail of anti-inflammatories, steroids, and anticoagulants since spring 2020, Dr. Varone lowered hospital mortality among ICU COVID patients to about 4.1%, compared to well over 23% nationally. Even in the ICUs, where patients were coming in undertreated, we were able to dramatically reduce mortality, says Dr. Corey. Almost anything you do in the nursing homes, basically any combination of the various components of these protocols, reduces mortalities by at least 60%, McCullough told me. A 2021 paper in Medical Hypotheses supports McCullough's claim. That study, by 12 physician co-authors, shows that diverse combinations of many of these and similar medications dramatically lower death rates in a variety of nursing homes. The study concludes that even the most modest early medical therapy combinations were associated with 60% reductions in mortality. Says Dr. McCullough, therapeutic nihilism was the real killer of America's seniors. McCullough's findings may be conservative. Early in the pandemic, two Spanish nursing homes simultaneously experimented with early treatment with cheap, available, repurposed drugs and achieved 100% survival among infected residents and staff. Between March and April 2020, COVID-19 struck two elder care facilities in Yepes, Toledo, Spain. The mean age of residents in those locations was 85, and 48% were over 80 years old. Within three months, 100% of the residents at both locations had caught the virus. By the end of June, 100% of residents and half the workers were seropositive for COVID, meaning they had endured infection and recovered. None of them went to the hospital, and none died. None had adverse drug effects. Local doctors rapidly discovered early treatment with the same sort of remedies that McCullough was championing, antihistamines, steroids, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, aspirin, nasal washes, bronchodilators, and blood thinners. In pooled data, 28% of the residents in similar nursing homes in the same region over the same time period died. 
That study supports the experience of frontline physicians that cheap, available, repurposed drugs can easily prevent hospitalizations and deaths. Dr. McCullough and 57 colleagues published a second study in December of 2020 in a dedicated issue of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. The article, Multifaceted, Highly Targeted Sequential Multidrug Treatment of Early Ambulatory High-Risk SARS-CoV-2 Infection, COVID-19, described a marvelous breadth of effective drugs that these physicians had by then developed. By collecting data from the vast network of doctors across the globe, they added dozens of new compounds to the arsenal, all proven effective against COVID-19. Dr. Corey told me that he was deeply troubled that the extremely successful efforts by scores of frontline doctors to develop repurposed medicines to treat COVID received no support from any government in the entire world, only hostility, much of it orchestrated by Dr. Fauci and the U.S. health agencies. The large universities that rely on hundreds of millions in annual funding from NIH were also antagonistic. We didn't have a single academic institution come up with a single protocol, said Dr. McCullough. They didn't even try. Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Duke, you name it. Not a single medical center set up even a tent to try to treat patients and prevent hospitalization and death. There wasn't an ounce of original research coming out of America available to fight COVID other than vaccines. All of these universities are deeply dependent on billions of dollars that they receive from NIH. As we shall see, these institutions live in terror of offending Anthony Fauci, and that fear paralyzed them in the midst of the pandemic. Dr. Fauci refused to promote any of these interventions, says Corey. It's not just that he made no effort to find effective off-the-shelf cures. He aggressively suppressed them. Instead of supporting McCullough's work, NIH and the other federal regulators began actively censoring information on this range of effective remedies. Doctors who attempted merely to open discussion about the potential benefits of early treatments for COVID found themselves heavily and inexplicably censored. Dr. Fauci worked with Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and other social media sites to muzzle discussion of any remedies. FDA sent a letter of warning that N-acetyl-L-cysteine, NAC, cannot be lawfully marketed as a dietary supplement after decades of free access on health food shelves and suppressed IV vitamin C, which the Chinese were using with extreme effectiveness. In September, Dr. McCullough used his own money to create a YouTube video showing four slides from his peer-reviewed American Medical Association articles to teach doctors the miraculous benefits of early treatment with HCQ and other remedies. His video went viral with hundreds of thousands of downloads. YouTube pulled it two days later. Leading doctors and scientists, including some of the nation's most highly published and experienced physicians and frontline COVID specialists like McCullough, Corey, Ryan Cole, 
David Brownstein, and Reich believe that Dr. Fauci's suppression of early treatment and off-patent remedies was responsible for up to 80% of the deaths attributed to COVID. All five doctors independently told me the same thing. The relentless malpractice of deliberately withholding early effective COVID treatments, of forcing the use of toxic remdesivir, may have unnecessarily killed up to 500,000 Americans in hospitals. Dr. Corey says so plainly. Dr. Fauci's suppression of early treatments will go down in history as having caused the death of a half a million Americans in the ICU. Ryan Cole is one of the doctors who adopted McCullough's protocols early in the pandemic. Dr. Cole is a Mayo Clinic and Columbia University-trained board-certified anatomic clinical pathologist and the CEO medical director of Cole Diagnostics, the largest independent lab in Idaho. He has diagnosed more than 350,000 patients in his career. Dr. Cole discovered McCullough's research during his own investigation of early treatment remedies when his overweight brother called Dr. Cole from a neighboring state on his way to the ER with a positive PCR test, labored breathing, blood oxygen at 86, and chest discomfort that he rated 9 out of 10. He has type 1 diabetes, explains Dr. Cole. Dr. Cole redirected his sibling to a local pharmacy and called in an ivermectin prescription. Within six hours, my brother's chest pain was down to 2 out of 10 due to the interferon effect of ivermectin, and within 24 hours after taking ivermectin, his oxygen was 98, and he then fully recovered. Cole told me. A light bulb went off. Dr. Cole has overseen or helped perform over 125,000 COVID tests during the pandemic. Since rescuing his brother, he has encountered many patients in early stages of the disease. Almost none of them could find doctors in the community to treat them, he told me. I intervened to provide early treatment to over 300 positive patients, half of whom were comorbid and high risk. Of this cohort, none were hospitalized and none died. Early treatment of COVID-19, plain and simple, saves lives. If the medical profession had been forward-thinking and hands-on and focused on this disease with an early outpatient multidrug approach, knowing that COVID-19 is an inflammatory clotting disease, Hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved in the U.S. Never in the history of medicine, says Dr. Cole, has early treatment of any patient with any disease been so overtly neglected by the medical profession on such a massive scale. Cole adds, to not treat, especially in the midst of a highly transmissible deadly disease, is to do harm. Cole says that the only truly deadly pandemic is the pandemic of undertreatment. He says, the sacred doctor-patient relationship needs to be wrenched away from Anthony Fauci and the government medical-pharmaceutical-industrial complex. Doctors need to return to their oaths. Patients need to demand from medicine their right to be treated. This year has revealed the countless flaws of a medical system that has lost its direction and soul.
Cole points out that if you are under 70 years of age and have no severe pre-existing illness, you can hardly die from SARS-CoV-2 infection. So there is no fatality rate that can be reduced. And for people who are elderly and have pre-existing illness, he adds, as we know from Dr. Peter McCullough and his colleagues' work, there are miraculously effective medicines to treat this virus so that the fatality rates go down another 70 to 80 percent, which means there is no ground for emergency use whatsoever. That's a huge threat to the vaccine cartel and to remdesivir. It was only the independent doctors like Ryan Cole, who were not reliant on Dr. Fauci's largesse, and who threw themselves into hand-to-hand combat against COVID-19, who discovered readily available treatment modes. We had hero doctors that really had to break with the academic ivory tower, says McCullough. Finally, a group of independent organizations, including the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, and America's Frontline Doctors, galvanized to organize the country into four national telemedicine services and three regional telemedicine services. Following Dr. Corey's explosive Senate testimony, thousands of doctors and frightened COVID patients began calling the hotlines for treatment. We took over health care, says McCullough. In numerous countries and regions around the world, repeated Striking, temporarily associated reductions in both cases and deaths occurred very soon after either ivermectin was distributed or health ministry ivermectin recommendations were announced, said Dr. Corey. It could be argued that a similar association occurred in the U.S. Dr. Fauci and the industry propagandists later attributed the January decline in COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths to their vaccines which began their rollout in mid-December 2020. However, even mainstream media doctors reluctantly acknowledged that the drop could not possibly be a vaccine effect. By February 1, only 25.2 million, or 7.6% of Americans, had received a single vaccine dose. The CDC acknowledges that there is no effect until many weeks after the second COVID jab. Tony Fauci's decision to deny early treatments undoubtedly prolonged and intensified the pandemic. McCullough points out that early treatment does not just prevent hospitalization. It quickly starves pandemics to death by stopping their spread. Early treatment reduces the infectivity period from 14 days to about four days, he explains. It also allows someone to stay in the home so they don't contaminate people outside the home. And then it has this remarkable effect in reducing the intensity and duration of symptoms so patients don't get so short of breath, they don't get into this panic where they feel they have to break containment and go to the hospital. McCullough says that those hospital trips are tender for pandemics, especially since at that point the patient is at the height of infectivity with teeming viral loads. Every hospitalization in America, and there's been millions of them, has been a super-spreader event. Sick patients contaminate their loved ones, paramedics, Uber drivers, people in the clinic and offices. It becomes a total mess. McCullough says that by treating COVID-19 at home, doctors actually can extinguish the pandemic. 
So this has been a story of American heroes. It's been a story of worldwide success. McCullough's group is now part of a worldwide network of frontline physicians using repurposed drugs to save lives around the globe. These doctors have built networks and information banks outside of the government agency and university hegemony, allowing doctors to actually practice the art of healing. Their network includes the Bird Medical Coalition in the UK and Treatment Domiciliare COVID-19 Group in Italy, which conducts rallies to celebrate zero hospitalizations from this multi-drug approach. We have Panda in South Africa, the COVID Medical Network in Australia, and so on, says McCullough. Despite the various government agencies and the ivory tower medical institutions literally not lifting a finger, COVID-19 independent doctors and hero organizations kicked in. And to this day, we're in the middle of the Delta outbreak. Guess who's treating the Delta patients? It's again not the academic medical centers or the government or even the large group practices. They're not touching these patients. Once again, it is independent physicians. It's independent doctors who are actually compassionately reaching out and using what we call the precautionary principle. They are using their best medical judgment and scientific data to apply therapy now and to practice the art of healing. For any of our academic colleagues that have said, Dr. McCullough, we need to wait for large, randomized trials. What I've always said is, listen, this is a mass casualty event. People are dying now. They're being hospitalized now. We can't wait for large, randomized trials. We need to be doctors. We need to start healing people.